The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. no secret, larger-than-life skies come a dime a dozen about the American heartland. Lying midway between St. Louis and Chicago, in the arms of the Mississippi and Illinois rivers, a wide scenic valley carved out by trickling waters, making their way through ravines of oak and hickory to the Spoon River below. The meandering snake of muddy waters twists and turns through Fulton County from north to south, the prairie land composed of a thatched quilt of maize, rye, and stretches of Indian grass that once grew so tall it was said a man on horseback could see but an arm's length before his own nose. And below those hard blue skies, yawning pastures of cattle graze, churches outnumber saloons two to one, and all a man needs is a good dog and a shotgun, as good a place as any to get close to God. And more often than not, down-to-earth folks remain just that, salt. Spoon River Valley, most notable for the annual scenic drive, takes place the first two weekends in October. Over 100 miles of scenic routes offering a driving tour in a natural wonderland of beautiful fall colors. And historical sites to roadside flea markets, carnival stands selling corn dogs and elephant ears, amongst arts and crafts and local entertainment. Leaf peepers come from far and wide to ramble and ride from village to village. Those fall leaves in the autumn of 1992 passed in a swirl of warm color as Donna Tompkins, on the back of Terry Haynes' rumbling motorcycle, cool, rejuvenate breeze flowing through her hair, broad smile spread wide across her face. Donna hung on tight, arms around Terry as he leaned the bike to the left, to the right, on the twisting Spoon River Valley curves. 
They must have stopped at a scenic overlook, possibly for a corn dog, or to browse the birdhouses made from old license plates. Inspector of unearthed Coke bottles and old Milwaukee cans, or possibly for a cold brew at a rural biker bar. Regardless, whether they sat in an otherwise desolate crossroads, Donna looked down at her shaky hands and noticed her signet ring was gone. Donna was a classy lady who loved jewelry, wearing a gold Casio watch and two rings, one given to her nearly 14 years prior back in 79, when she was but a 16-year-old girl. 14 karat gold band with an opal in the center and a small red garnet on each side which she always wore on her right hand. On the left, the missing signet, initials on the inside, DJA, Donna Jean Amaguchi. Not quite as valuable, but priceless nonetheless, gifted to her by her mother before she had died. Her heart stopped as she looked at her bare finger and then it rose into her throat as tears formed in the corners of her eyes. Donna grew very upset as the effects of the wind therapy quickly faded. Since moving to Illinois, far away from her family, and indeed since her mother's death, Donna rarely took off the ring or any of her jewelry, even at night. A pet peeve of her sister Susan's. Once when Donna had visited Susan while she was an MBA student at the University of Illinois in Champaign, Donna slept with her in her dorm room. Seeing the rings on Donna's fingers as she tucked herself in, cozy in a bed of comforters on the floor, it drove Susan up a wall to see her still laden in gold and silver. But Susan knew that Donna absolutely loved her rings, and she knew why. And Terry could see how truly devastated Donna was. And a few days later, he went to Reichert's Jewelry on the town square in Canton. But the closest ring which Terry had described to the jeweler, Mr. Rickett, was a signet, but a 1938 Canton High School senior class ring with the initials CJH. The new ring would never be able to replace the one her mother had gave her. Still, Donna was taken aback by this kind offering and thoughtfulness. She took to wearing it as steadfastly as she had the original. Donna was devastated by the loss of her mother, and the class ring, though not the original, must have stimulated that same sensation that her mother was walking her through life, hand in hand. Donna came from a very close-knit family. But going off to college alone and then moving to the small midwestern town a thousand miles inland from Stamford, Connecticut, must have cultivated a thick nostalgia for her large family and Catholic upbringing that she bragged about continuously to anyone who would listen. And indeed, no one could walk away from the conversation without feeling a residual homesickness of their own, certainly one that Donna was never quite able to shake. Moving to Canton, Illinois in 1984 must have been a courageous pursuit on her part. Though an aunt lived in town, Donna was clearly embarking into the unknown on a life of her own, one that would eke her father, as his rebellious daughter, had seemingly dropped out of college to jump into a VW microbus, westward bound for San Francisco with flowers in her hair. But in fact, Donna had graduated with a degree, and moved to the quaint, conservative, relatively safe and quiet settlement surrounded by vast countryside 
indeed dotted with more churches than taverns. Donna was on the up and up. And she didn't drink after all, didn't smoke, do drugs, certainly not that her family was aware of. And she got hired right in the door at the community bank of Canton, where she would serve as none other than the secretary to the president. Goes to show the standards Donna was expected to live up to. And Donna did her best as she walked the walk, talked the talk, and lived the life vision, the dream, the ambition her father had cultivated in her to climb that ladder of success, to pursue that American dream. Though she had returned to Wisconsin in 85 to testify against a man from the not-so-distant past, she quickly returned to the bank a few days later, focused not only on the task at hand, but with her eyes bound to the broad Midwestern horizon, where the road of promises she so diligently pursued, with any luck, might hopefully lead. She even met a guy at the bank, Bruce White, and then another man, ten years her senior, a man who had come in one day, his first day in town in fact, he proclaimed, as he asked to open a checking account. His name, David Haynes, fresh out of law school, not a dime in his pocket to deposit but he had moved to town for a new job, just as Donna had, and they quickly bonded. David had been hired on at an entry-level law firm, and believing Donna to undoubtedly be the cutest girl in town, he asked her out and she agreed. Though the two had a wonderful time going to dinner a few times, they quickly realized the spark was not there romantically, and they decided to be friends as great friends they would become. And soon the rumors began to swirl about the bank that Donna was seeing Kenneth Owens, the bank director. 54 years of age, Donna, but 24. They had started dating in the fall of 85, when Kenneth took Donna for a ride on his combine through the fields on his farm. At the time, Donna was living in a trailer on Ash Street behind a beauty salon. And though the relationship was controversial about the bank, especially amongst the officers, and gossiped about in hushed whispers by others, the two did not flaunt it. Still, they did not hide it either going out dancing, bowling, to dinner, or to the mall. They lived it up and had fun. Though Donna never got too wild, was never drunk, though she did enjoy a glass of Jack Daniels in water, maybe a glass of wine. Kenneth loved her Italian cooking, and in his own words, she had the body of a Playboy model. One he so adored. The relationship continued over the winter into the spring, and all the while, Kenneth was going through a lengthy divorce, having dated several younger women before Donna. Meanwhile, his wife was none too happy about any of them, and one day she stomped into the bank and asked the teller at the counter, where is Ken's latest conquest? Well, let's just say the relationship quickly fizzled out after that. But in no time, Donna had met a wealthy man from Chicago named Jiraco, and a local guy, a farmer closer to her age, who raised hogs and sheep on the family farm near Cuba, Illinois. Meanwhile, the community bank, where Donna was only making $5 an hour and where she felt she could not advance, closed its doors in 88, leaving Donna to call up an old friend, David, who had since been hired on as a trust officer for the National Bank of Canton after a stint as a lawyer didn't quite pan out. Donna asked David if he thought it would be weird if the two worked together, given their brief yet romantic past. And David said, Are you kidding me? No, not at all. 
So Donna started immediately, secretary to the trust officer, David's right hand as he would come to call her. The modern lady Donna was had a tough time making friends with some of the older gals. And even though many were impressed with Donna's work ethic, professionality, and moral standards, many who had been around for a while felt they had been screwed out of the position Donna seemingly walked right into off the street. But Donna was content and thought she finally had a shot at advancement. And Donna might make her father proud. Now, if she could only fulfill another of his wishes, settle down and marry. As Donna was still seeing Mr. Jiraco on fast weekends, fine dining in the Windy City, something deep inside her was telling her she should stay with him. But she said yes when hog farmer John Tompkins got down on one knee. Soon she found herself living on a farm, which was sort of a shock for Donna, but she gave rural living her best shot. Though she wore flowing flowered dresses and skirts to work, down on the farm she threw on plaid shirts tucked into pairs of high-rise stonewashed jeans, cut her long hair off into a short conservative bob, and purchased a pair of oversized 80s eyeglasses, the kind that make your eyes bulge out of your head. And soon, Donna was pregnant, and on September 4, 1989, Justine Nicole Tompkins was born. Donna took time off at the bank, but quickly grew anxious, landlocked in the farmhouse. After all, John was a busy man with the farm operation, gone quite often, showing sheep and working in the farrowing houses. So as Donna returned to the bank, her time with Justine was limited. Though Donna was undoubtedly a good mother, John began to have doubts, and the responsibility of childbearing put a strain on the marriage. John thought that Donna resented being the farmer's wife. In entering a new decade, he began to see his wife more clearly as a woman of the 90s, a career woman. It irked John that Donna wanted to go back to school for her master's degree. He not only disapproved, but he also insisted she cut back her hours to part-time at the bank. He explained to her that she grew up different than him, and that he felt that she didn't like spending time with the family. But when Donna would try to talk to her own kin on the phone, John would mock her, even going so far as to say, while her mother was dying of cancer, that she was not sick at all, that it was all a ploy to ignore him and his needs. He began to get on her case about disciplining Justine. John was lax and felt that Justine was too cute to punish, while Donna, never spanking Justine, felt a good slap on the hand was sometimes necessary to teach her consequences and right and wrong. Donna felt that she was raising Justine all on her own, that John only played the father when it suited him. In those times when Donna was on the phone with her ailing mother, she would ask John to keep an eye on Justine, but he refused, ignoring the child to pull out pots and pans from the cupboards and bang on them with spatulas. Finally, she told John she did not want to have any more children with him. Obviously, this upset John, and the marriage took a dark turn and became a real mess. John began to mentally abuse Donna, lost total control over his temper, and would go berserk at the drop of a hat. By the time Donna started night classes, there was practically no communication between the two, and John would incessantly lie to Donna, 
when he broke her heart when he failed to arrive on time for her mother's visitation. And from that day forth, Donna knew that John was not there for her. The Tompkins had long been a prominent family in Fulton County, landowners who raised corn-fed track stars as children. The all-star John had been in high school. Those glory days were now long past, and the medals, trophies, and framed photos of the team on the wall meant little compared to the pressures of adulthood. Piling on the pressure, the farm operation was falling apart, and the whole family was undergoing financial stress. John and his father were not getting along, and he had had a couple physical confrontations with his brother that got way out of hand. The police were called. The family decided John had finally crossed the line. By 91, the couple had been receiving counseling from Pastor Mike Boyle, but without John and Donna's absolute participation, little progress had resulted from the sessions. Amid all this marital chaos, John asked Donna to sign a $100,000 note for a new hall confinement building. And as rumors of bestiality spread, and the family debated over who would care for and show the sheep other than John, John lashed out, and John's father, Ron, decided it would be best if John left the farm for good. This led to the apex moment in the marriage, and the two got into a heated debate. After things settled down a bit, Donna went into the bathroom, and John came up behind her, and he made a pass, telling her she looked beautiful and asked her if she would like to go to bed. Donna spun around and accosted John. How could you say such a thing after all that has happened? And John, once again, lost control. And in an attempt to strike his wife in the face, he punched the doorframe, splintering it to pieces. Donna finally reached her breaking point, And when she left John in April of 1992, John felt that she had left behind the things that had hindered her. A husband, cooking for a man, and a yard that was too big. Donna had in fact taken Justine and left the farm. But she had done so to leave behind the violence. Donna had taken back the power, seizing control of her future. And with her large brown eyes on the blue horizon, Donna decided to live that life she had dreamt of, to release that trapped woman inside of her, that voice she had so long ignored. Who was she after all? A mystery Donna was determined to seek out. But all things have consequences, just as she tried to teach her little Justine. And as she sought that freedom, Donna watched as what was expected of her and who she desired to be clashed, splitting her image apart and paving the way for what wickedness would come swift and ungodly in the dead of night. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Lone Bird Media in association with CZ Studio. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman. Audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, 
Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide.